Hi, I'm Kasfi Malik and this is Audacity, Women in Sport. This podcast is dedicated to celebrating and learning from the audacious, bold women who are creating an impact in their respective sports. So what makes these women audacious? By simply choosing to pursue a career in sport, they've gone against the grain and fought gender stereotypes to pave the way for a brighter future for girls in the world of sport. Whether that's as athletes on the field or from the sidelines as coaches, mentors or decision makers. Today, we're joined by an athlete who is making waves, literally, in the world of open water swimming. She has swum alongside whales and penguins in all five oceans, swum across the English Channel not once but twice, once solo and once with her mother, and is the first Asian woman and the youngest in the world to set a record in open swimming in Antarctic waters. To be precise, she swam 1.4 miles in a little over 41 minutes at a temperature of 1 degree Celsius. It is my immense honor to introduce you all to Bhakti Sharma, India's most prominent open water swimmer. I was wondering how it's possible that India is a country with nearly 1.3 billion people and somehow Bhakti is the first Indian open water swimmer I've ever heard of. The reason shook me. Open water swimming isn't recognized as a sport in India because it's considered to be an adventure sport, similar to climbing Mount Everest. From being told to not wear a swimsuit to setting a world record, Bhakti's journey is one of true resilience and has been grueling both mentally and physically. Her story will help you see what's in store for you when you refuse to let the obstacles keep you from getting to your destination. Let's dive right into my conversation with Bhakti Sharma. Welcome Bhakti to Audacity Women in Sports. Thank you so much Kasmi and thank you so much for that introduction. It it was so nice to hear all that. You deserve all of it. Thank you. So, tell me a little bit about what you were like growing up. What did you enjoy doing as a little girl? What were you what were you like? Um growing up um i was i still am a very introverted i was a very introverted kid um i never had like a big friend circle but i had one or two very close friends who would live in the neighborhood so um i was usually swimming uh school practice practice school that was my schedule but uh, when i did get some break time when the swimming pools were closed or when um we had summer vacations i used to love uh just taking out my bicycle and just just riding around the neighborhood i would feel like um like an explorer if i would end up on a new street that i have never been before so i would feel like oh look at me i'm just exploring these new areas um so that was one of my favorite things to do and then playing in the street with just my friends playing badminton uh and stuff like that so uh those were the things that i really like to do yeah nothing nothing unusual for an indian kid small town kid that sounds like a really fun childhood i was really into biking as well i lived in chandigarh for a while and so i know what this feeling was like to like go on a bike and it was you know you explore a new street and you're like wow Whole new world that's opened up to me. So, how did swimming come into your life? Uh, swimming came into my life just how I came to life through my mother. Uh, <laughs> she she was a national level swimmer herself in Bombay. So she grew up in Bombay, which is now Mumbai. Um, and she was a table tennis player and a swimmer, and she was super into theater. but she grew up in a very conservative surroundings where it was just like do your studies and then focus on getting married so um she knew how to swim and she believed both my parents believed that a everyone should know how to swim and bike like just life saving skills and b uh, a kid should be involved in an extracurricular activity so not just academics because both my parents were sports people my dad played hockey for his college team at the national level um so they really believe that i should be in some sort of extra curricular activities and my mom thought that just because she knew swimming she can teach that to me 
so it started off as her teaching me how to just swim as a life-saving skill. Uh, we didn't have any swimming pools back then in India, so she would take me to a hotel pool. Um, and then she had to stop doing that because there was so much taboo around it and it was an expensive membership, the hotel. Uh, and then a few years later, when a local school opened a swimming pool in their campus, we started going there again. So that's how swimming started. For for a few years in my life, I was doing sp- uh, swimming and karate. So I was like one day swimming, one day karate. And when my karate coach left the town, uh, I was like one belt away from black belt. Um, that's when we took off swimming again. Me too. I used to do karate when I was I was living in Bangladesh in like the fourth grade. So obviously I don't remember any of it now, but. Uh, I was also a brown belt with three stripes before I, no, I had two stripes before I moved away from Bangladesh. And so I couldn't complete and get my black belt. Yeah, that's always like this thing in my life that I, you know, like, uh, you know, I left that. <laughs> I miss that. That's on my bucket list for whenever we're not in a pandemic to go back to a karate. Um, so what about swimming or sport resonates with you? Um... This is a hindsight discovery. This is not something that I grew up believing in. But when I look back on my career, when I look back on my swimming life, I think the thing that resonated most with me was how much time it gave me to spend with myself. Because it's a lonely sport to begin with, but because no one else was doing it at the level that I was doing it, not like at a higher level, but just doing it throughout the year, I wouldn't stop swimming where most kids would stop swimming. So. I used to be the only one in the pool for three or four months in a year. So it gave me a lot of time alone with myself. And um, I think why I kept on with open water swimming was the sense of adventure. So the explorer feeling that I got as a kid on biking to new streets in my town was the same feeling that I had when I was diving into new oceans. So I think that explorer in me felt very connected to open water swimming. I love that. And Explorer is the best way to describe you and what you've gone on to achieve. So what is your relationship to water though, in particular? <laughs> That's such a good question. No one has asked me that. People ask me, what's your relationship to swimming at best? Uh, well, That's a great question. My relationship with water is like that of a best friend. Um, I love it. I have fights with it. I literally talk to the ocean sometimes when it's getting very rough. So when I get in and it's really wavy or choppy, I have this full-on argument with the water that, oh, you're going to do this to me now. This is how it's going to be. So it's like like having a best friend that doesn't talk back to you. Well, it does talk back uh, in forms of waves and tides. But I have cried in the water. I have felt so much joy in the water. Um, my favorite thing to do is just after practice, I would just lay on my back and just float. So the water covers your ears so you don't hear anything. And it's just the best feeling in the world because you don't feel the weight of your own body. You feel like you're, you're actually floating. So yeah, that's my relationship. It's, it's like my best friend. I love that. Um, tell me what it was like swimming in India. Um, hard, very difficult. Uh, like I said, my mom was my coach, but she doesn't have any professional training as coaching. So it was mostly her trying to figure out what she needs to do to make me better. Uh, we, when we, I started competing at the district level, people started noticing me and there was a coach in Udaipur who asked my mom to send me to him because he had a team and everything. But he would teach in a lake. So we, I moved from pool to this lake, Pichola, in Udaipur, and that's where we trained for a few years. And Sorry, for everyone who doesn't know much about Udaipur, can you give us a brief background about what Udaipur is like as a city? Sure. Udaipur is called the city of lakes. And I feel like that's, that's the biggest reason I could do whatever I could do in open water swimming because there are so many lakes. So uh, there are main two lakes, Pichola Lake and Fatisagar Lake, which is where I practiced in both two lakes. Um, and it's, a, it's called the Venice of the East. It's one of the most uh, 
hyped up places for destination weddings. So it's just a very beautiful city, but a small town. Um, so we started practicing at the lake and the situation was that there were no changing rooms. There were no like locker rooms or anything. So after practice and there was a small temple by the lake, there were like three or four girls in the team. So we would go in the temple, hold towels for each other to change in the temple. And then we would go home because none of us wanted to go in bed clothes back home. So that's how that's how difficult it was. We were already training in a lake, which was, I'm sure, had all kinds of um, sewage coming in from the city. Uh, if that's not difficult, the competition itself is very difficult. If you go to competitions, like the places they, they used to give to stay are not very nice. My mom, thankfully, would always accompany me to competitions. Like, we used to live in good accommodations, but... It's, it's an ongoing battle, you know, the food is sometimes not good, the food that kind athletes need, it's not there. Um, my biggest struggle was just to get girls to compete in my event because uh, it's not a popular sport with girls, it's getting better now. But I have had state level competitions where I would just go to other girls and be like, can you please participate in this event because uh, you need three people to have an event. So. It was a struggle. Uh, I My privilege is not lost on me because I saw growing up how much other girls had to struggle because they wouldn't have proper swimsuits, they wouldn't have proper training. So it's a difficult journey for sure. And you mentioned to me that your mom would take some of your competitors out to buy swimsuits because they didn't have them. Can you talk to me a little bit about what it was like to wear swimsuits and why that was such a taboo? Well, even now, it, uh, as recent as three or four years ago, in a city like Bombay, when I was going back to my training, I was told not to wear the V-cut swimsuit, which is the Speedo, which is like uh, the competition level swimsuit. And the reason was, well, you're okay. We know that you're you're a competitive swimmer, but you know, people around here might have like a they might not be nice people. So even till until now, it's a taboo to wear swimsuits. And these girls that I'm talking about were coming from really small towns, villages, um, and representing their government schools, the public schools. So they would compete in t-shirts and shorts. So, uh, or they would just have, you know, the underslip that we used to wear as kids, they would have that and they would pin it up and swim in the, get in the pool. So there have been instances when my mom uh, just like took these girls to the shop and be like, okay, buy this swimsuit. And the next day they would compete in that. That's wild to me. I can't wrap my head around that, to be honest. I think it's such a shame that something like your uniform should be, should dictate whether you can compete or not, you know? Um, did you have any contests or competitions that were cancelled because, or you couldn't compete because there weren't enough girls? Oh yeah, uh, so many of my events would get cancelled because I would always do long distance. So I would do 200 meters, 400 meters, uh, 800 meters. And the older I got, the less competitors I would see in the competition because there was also this thing that parents would let their kids, especially their girls, swim until they are, you know, like 12, 13. But the older they started getting, they would stop sending them to swimming pools and practices and competitions. So many of my events did get cancelled at the state. We're also talking about a state like Rajasthan, which has one of, like, you know, the highest feticide and pinticide rates. So um, things are getting better now. But yeah, I haven't been to a competition recently. But when I was competing, my events used to get cancelled. And how long did you continue to compete in India? I did when until I was in my ninth standard and then I started training for open water. And then I was told I had to wait two years to do the English Channel solo because you have to be at least 16. So then I went back again. Uh, so maybe until I was in my 11th standard. Wow. And you said that parents wouldn't allow their daughters to compete after the age of 12, 13. Do you think that was because they hit puberty and their bodies start changing and it's uncomfortable to see them in a swimsuit? Or is it because of the academic pressure? 
it's a combination of both those things plus the fact that they wouldn't feel safe to send their girls uh, to the competitions because not every parent could afford to accompany their child to competitions uh, so there's a safety issue also involved when you're sending your girl out there to compete when you know there's bare minimum girls in the team the mostly boys there's a safety issue sometimes the, there would be a lady manager or coach with them sometimes they would not be there so it's a combination of all these things like it's a it's environmental factors the societal factors yeah and you mentioned that you know some parents couldn't afford to travel with their daughters is there any kind of structure in place for sponsorships for girls who are swimming competitively in india right now for them to be able to afford their travel and to compete in the events um not that i know of um uh, i know that if you go to state level competitions for the for the schooly competitions which is the slang we had for uh the competitions that are organized by the main body the main swimming body you get ta and tada which is travel allowance and dining allowance so your your tickets are covered your stay is covered and food is provided by by the people so yeah those things are in place but not sponsorships per se you know so you get the tada from the government sometimes you get it when you're there sometimes it comes later to you when you're already back home so but it's across the board for anyone who's competing in a state level swimming competition it's for the team when you were playing at the state level how many members were there in the swimming team from adhapur uh it was like a like a bell curve graph uh I when I started off there were quite a good number of girls we were a good team of at least 7 8 up to 10 girls and then like I said the older I started getting the lesser it started becoming but then we had the crowd of younger younger girls Tell me about your journey to swimming in Antarctica <laughs> Uh Antarctica was a long 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 time into my open water swimming journey so I did that swim in 2015. Can't believe it's already five years. I had already done a swim in all the four oceans before Antarctica, so Indian Atlantic, Pacific, and Arctic. And I was following the footsteps of Lewis Book, who's who's been kind of my idol since I came to know about him. Uh, and he has done a long distance swim in all five oceans, so that's something that I wanted to do. Um, by the time I decided i'm going to do the antarctica swim i had done my mba and i was working in an ad agency in bombay so um my office desk would have pictures of like antarctica louisburg mount everest motivational quotes none of which i needed for the kind of job that i was doing so clearly my head was in some some in antarctica and my body was there um and i was 9 months into the job and i just said you know what i'm going to quit um and i was in a program where if i stayed for a year they would give me promotion because i started as a trainee so they were going to give me promotion and a bonus package so when i told people 9 uh, months into the job that i'm going to quit everybody's reaction was just stick out another 3 months uh but I don't know I couldn't do that. I was just getting so suffocated in that job and I went and told my boss and gave him my resignation. The first resignation I gave him he just told it. He's like, "You know what? You're not thinking straight. Take 7 days, come back to me if you still feel like it." So I took the 7 days and I thought about it and I kept thinking what if I die tomorrow and I die without even trying to swim the Antarctic Ocean. Um So I have to at least try. So I went again 7 days later. I gave him my resignation. I was like, "Boss, I have to do this." So he let me go and uh, I went back to Udaipur. And I started training there. I started trying to figure out um how to get there. Um it's the logistics of it was a complete struggle because it's such a dangerous swim. It's a risky swim. Um there's no swimming association or anything in Antarctica. So I had to approach the tourist ship, the cruise ships to take me on board with them. And I got rejections after rejections from them. I got rejections after rejections from sponsors. Uh I even contacted people who had done Antarctica before and they told me not to do it. It's really dangerous. Um so like just 
no, no, no from everywhere. And uh, I just kept, I just kept uh, trying on. That was also the time when I got really, really into self-development and self-improvement and I started meditating. So I would just make a list of things in the day to do. And as long as I checked off all the things, I would sleep happy no matter all the rejections. So long story short, I finally got accepted by a cruise. They were like, as long as you sign a waiver that if you die, it's not our responsibility. And you bring your own doctor, you bring your own medical equipment, starting from a defibrillator to adrenaline injections and everything. But I still didn't have sponsors up until then. Because they asked me to bring my own doctor and my own team, my cost went up exponentially because instead of two people, now we were taking five people or four people. Um, and I was trying to get sponsors. We broke our fixed deposit that I had to pay for the first installment of the tickets. Um, at some point, my parents even suggesting selling off the gold, which was a very crazy idea. And I told them that. <laughs> uh, and uh, we were supposed to leave for Argentina in the first week of January. And in the first week of December, I still had no money to pay for the tickets. And then suddenly I got this call from my dad's friend who was going to take me to meet the CEO of Hindustan Singh, which is a big, big company in Udaipur. I had a meeting. The CEO was like, how much money do you need? Just tell me. I told him and he's like, okay, we do a press conference this evening. So when it happens, it happens. It, like that's how it's been all my life. Uh, and the training was crazy too. I bought a inflatable pool. I kept it at my rooftop and I would fill it with 15, 20 tons of ice every day and swim in the water the next day. But there's only so much wiggle room in an inflatable pool. So uh, the other thing I tried was suspending myself with a mining harness from the ceiling and just so that I could stay in one place but still take strokes. But that caused uh, shaving in my arms. It was hurting a lot. So then we finally found like a very tiny pool in somebody's house. And every night my family would go throw ice in it. And the next morning I would go swim in that pool. So that's how I trained for Antarctica. That's been my short version of a very crazy story. I wish I could show my expression on this podcast right now because I'm sure everyone who listens to this is going to have the same reaction. Wow. Okay, first of all, I want to say how incredible and how effortlessly it seems to come to you. This idea about I might die tomorrow and I won't have done something that I wanted to do for so long. I think most of us think of this as a very removed concept. Uh, that's not very easy to actually practice in real life. But for you, it was so effortless. How did that happen? How did you start to think that way? I think... Um... I think it's effortless because I have a good backup uh, in terms of my family. They were disappointed. My dad was like, just take it out for another three months. But I knew I had a home to go. Even if I don't continue working, I won't starve or, you know, I won't be on the streets. So that has given me a platform where I could bounce off of. You know, everyone needs a platform. And then where you go from that platform depends on the person. So that has contributed a lot to me thinking that way. But also, I think the kind of life I've lived, every time you step into the ocean, there's no guarantee that you're coming back alive or without injury. Um, I did a successful English Channel swim, but there are people who've died during that swim who were great athletes, very fit, more fit than I am, um, or even disappeared in that water, just carried off by the tide. So... Like the sport taught me how to live from day to day. And um, I think that's where this comes from. That's amazing. And just the, the lengths that you went to to prepare for this. Let me tell you, I can't even take a cold water shower. I can't even begin to fathom swimming in one degree Celsius water. Wow. Kudos to you cold showers too i love myself a very hot uh, long shower but i think i'm j i just get into my masochistic mode sometimes so tell me about the actual swim itself what that was like and how did that experience change you because i was training in such icy waters i knew that i hyperventilate so even when you take a cold shower the first instinct you are like like you take a very uh, hyper breath. So that is a very normal reaction of your body to the coldness. 
so I was prepared for that. I knew, I knew that was going to happen. But uh, when I jumped into the water, I did not hyperventilate at all. Maybe because mentally I had trained myself so much that I was just prepared for the coldness. What did happen was when I started swimming in the ocean because this was the first time I was in Antarctic Ocean. I didn't, didn't I didn't do a trial run or anything. Um, when I started swimming, the water felt very, very heavy because the salt content is really high because the water is melting from the glaciers and iceberg. So it felt like I was pulling through oil. It was so thick, it dense. Even like when you look underneath, it looked like dark grayish. That's how dense the water was. So I started swimming and I had already lost a lot of morale in the first couple of days when I saw my first iceberg. And my reaction was like, what have I gotten myself into? Because up until that point, I was like, yeah, yeah, I'll do it. I'll do it. I've done things. But when you see your first iceberg, you realize how cold the water is actually going to be. And Antarctica is intimidating. It's really intimidating. There are no human beings. There's just, just ice, ice, ice everywhere. And when I was swimming in the first five minutes, I thought I won't be able to do this. I won't be able to be in this water for more than 100 or 200 meters. Um, so I, I started chanting. I started going back to things that I had done in my mental training. Um, I, I went back to the philosophy of one day at a time. So I said one stroke at a time. Can you take one more stroke? The answer was yes. So I took a stroke and that's how I kept swimming. And then when I was on the boat prepping, I was noticing a penguin swimming around the boat. And when I was... I was struggling in the water. I saw that very penguin come from underneath the boat. It was swam under my stomach and came on my left hand side and it started swimming with me. So that just made me laugh. That just made me give a huge crazy smile on my face. And then I looked up to the people on the boat and you know, just to check like, did you see that? And they were laughing too. So I think that just made it a very lighter occasion. That that smile just made me have fun in the swim. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to focus on this penguin and keep swimming. And I kept swimming. And that's all the memory that I have of the swim. Because after the first 10 minutes, I don't remember anything. Because I was hypothermic. I do remember... I. I saw the video, so I know what happened, but I kept asking my mom, like, how much more is left? Because my target was to do 2.5K in the ocean. Um, what we did was we took a GPS tracker, and the way we set it up was the boat's distance from the main ship. So the distance kept changing on the GPS, and my mom thought that I still haven't done that much swim. So she kept telling me it's left now, It's you're still far away. Um, the third time I asked her, I was like, you know what? I'm done. I, I can't swim. And this was all like, I don't remember all this. This is from the video. They got me out. I was severely hypothermic. They rushed me to the bathroom. The main goal was just to revive me and keep me from falling asleep. Otherwise, I could have slipped into a coma. Um, two hours later, I recovered. And that's when they checked the TomTom watch I was wearing. Because I was wearing that to measure my distance. And they realized that I had actually done the record swim. And so when when I got out, when I recovered, I had no conception of a world record. It was just like, okay, I'm out, I'm out alive. Uh, no, nobody expected me to recover without uh, IV fluids. So they were trying to insert like the butterfly IV into my veins before the swim. But my veins are very tricky and they couldn't find it. But I don't know. I recovered... Uh, good well i went to the dining room of the cruise had a dinner with everybody on the on the ship um everyone was so happy and i couldn't sleep that night i think it was the adrenaline so i went up to the deck at 3 a.m and there was no one on the deck and it was just this beautiful beautiful sunrise and i was just happy because you know that dream that i had like what if i die tomorrow without trying i tried that made me happy. Like, you know, I went for the thing that I really wanted to do and I tried and turns out it came out successful, but even if it hadn't, I would just still be very happy. And I still have the memory of that penguin cheering me on. So. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm tearing up. I just can't believe it's so just 
commendable. I'm so moved by by your story. Um, okay, tell me, what was the time between when you decided to take the swim on and when it actually came to life? And it sounds like you had a whole journey just through that time. So tell me about how you managed to stay determined through it, even with all the rejections that you got. Um, yeah, I, <clears throat> that was, that was a big journey. Um, we had a particular sponsor, prospective sponsor, who told me yes to a certain amount to sponsor the swim. And I would go to his house every, every other week, every other Sunday, and I would just sit there, wait for him, and then he would come out, and he'd be like, next week, Bhakti, next week. So, like, I spent, I think, two months doing that diligently going to his I never got like angry or frustrated he was just keep telling me next week next week and I, I believe that uh, one day I did break down while coming back from his house I, I was driving and I just stopped and I just yelled and screamed and cried in my car because it was like I was angry because I felt such a calling to do this and I I don't know, I, I was talking to God or universe or whatever, and I was just like, why have you given me this calling if you're not going to make it happen? So I was just frustrated. Um, the way I stayed determined was actually thanks to a lot of mental training and meditation and talking to my teacher every single day. I would call him every single day after meditation and just tell him, and he kept telling me, you are doing what you can, right? So that's it. That's all you can do. That's all that's in your control. And I had reached a point where I was like, even if I have to go alone without a doctor or anything, I'm ready to do it. I do it if that's what it takes. So I was just prepared to do whatever I could do. Everything else was beyond my control. And I kept telling myself that. I absolutely love your mental strength. I'm just so in awe. I really am. And I'm sure everyone who hears this is going to feel exactly the same way. So I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about what swimming is like in India today. Is it still as much of a taboo for girls and women? And how can we change this conversation? Um, I think it's changing. I think it's much better now. I see a lot of open water swimmers coming out from India. I see a lot of swimmers coming out from India. The ratio is still very high on the men's side than on the women's side. But I, I feel there's a change. I feel that people are opening more to it. Uh, swimming itself is not a very high list on priority in India. When I was training for Antarctica, there's this uh, organization which is dedicated to supporting upcoming athletes. I would not name that organization, but when I sent them a mail about my swim and asking if they could help me, their exact response for us, I'm sorry, Bhakti, but swimming is not a priority sport for us uh, right now. So that's still the mindset. That's still the overarching theme. But I think a lot of it has to do with us as a society also. Like, um, no one goes to watch swimming competitions, state level or national level. It's just the teams. It's just the kids and their parents. No one will pay tickets to go watch a swim meet or they're not televised. So people people don't associate swimming with, you know, a nice sport, a high. And it's a it's an expensive sport. Like you were a golfer, you would understand it's being in sports is hard enough. But if it's an expensive sport, it just becomes so much farther away to do it. Um, did you ask me how we can change it or what needs to be done? Um, I thought about it a lot. I th I think that the model that I see here in the U.S. seems to be really working, which is of um, promoting collegiate sports. So if you're a swimmer in high school, people come and recruit you from universities and you get a full ride or at least a half ride scholarship. So your education is taken care of. That's the most important thing, right? An athlete doesn't, shouldn't have to worry about where my next meal is going to come from or where my education is going to come from. They have enough 
to focus on with the sport itself. So if we as a society can take care of the rest of the things, then I think we can have so many more uh, sports people. So if we start televising it, if people start putting in money, if we, if brands, big brands started choosing these athletes as their ambassadors, then celebrities or Bollywood stars, I think we could change. We could see a change. Like we don't need a Bollywood celebrity as a as a swimsuit ambassador. I'm sorry to say this, but <laughs> it's it's just it's sad, you know, because we are dedicating our entire life to a sport. So that's the least that companies and a society can do. Um. Also, there has to a lot of private money has to come in. Just leaving it on the government is not going to help. Uh, we've all seen the condition of sports growing up when it's left to just local authorities or local bodies. So a lot of private organizations have to come in and put money into sports. I completely agree with that. And I think another aspect that I find very important that we need to change, especially in India, is that we don't recognize athletics as being something that is a field worth working in or worth pursuing professionally. As a society, we really place a lot of importance and uh, respect in the fields like doctors and engineers and having a corporate career because as a system, we're built in a way where those are the, the professions that bring in a paycheck. So I think it's a, a bit of a vicious cycle also, right? We don't place importance on sport, so no one pays attention. So there's no money in it, so you can't earn a paycheck. And it just is a self-perpetuating cycle. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree with that. Uh, not seeing sports as a career choice is one of the most detrimental things that we do. Uh, and it is not a career choice. I have never been paid to swim. So I cannot call myself a professional swimmer because I've never been paid to do that. And um, yeah, so that, that model needs to be fixed. Like the mentality even now is that if you do well in sports, that opens up aspects for you to get admissions in college and then maybe a government job. But that's that. That's it. So people, we don't hone the skills that an athlete has or develops during their journey to you know, trade in with something else. Like I think athletes could be great leaders. They could be great trainers, mental health trainers, physical health trainers. So these are the skills that we need to hone in and open career options for athletes. Completely agree. And, you know, at the risk of sounding very biased, which obviously I clearly am towards sports in general, uh, you mentioned that you developed this mindset of taking it one day at a time and you know, I think that is such an incredible concept that really changes the way you approach everything in life. Uh, it really allows you to live in the present moment. And you did that on your swim with the penguin as well, right? You brought yourself back to just being completely present. And I just think that if more people thought that way, who knows where we'd be as a society. Exactly. And I, I'm sure I'm not the only one who has these uh perspectives in life as athletes we have we live so much of life in a very short period of time because you start at a young age and then you peak at a very young age and so much happens between that period and there are so many life lessons that you learn through sport so these are the perspectives that we need to leverage from athletes to mainstream society because these are also the perspectives if not honed then lead to mental health illnesses in retired athletes that's a really good point. And speaking of mental strength, I was thinking about how much of it you must need to be able to swim in one degree Celsius water for over 40 minutes, especially considering you don't have any teammates, you're all alone in the water with no one to cheer you on, except for a penguin, of course. <laughs> how did you train your mind to prepare for this? Um, I shut myself down. So when I say I shut myself down, I mean that I had a room in my parents' house on the first floor and it was my sanctuary. So I would just meditate in that room, read, come down for food or step out, you know, for meetings, for sponsorships and stuff and step out for practice. Um, but I completely closed off myself to any sort of demotivation or negativity. So Whenever I, I, A, I didn't run past this idea past a lot of people. 
whenever people would ask me in that period, what are you doing? I would just be like, oh, I'm figuring out. I'm trying to prepare for my next swim. But I did not tell people what I was doing until it was absolutely necessary, like for sponsorships. Because I knew the more people I tell, the more, oh, but why? Oh, but you can't. These are going to come my way. And there's only so much I can defend myself from that. So I, um, I stayed away from that. I protected this idea like a child is what I'm saying. I protected myself and this idea like a child and kept myself away from negativity, negative thoughts, negative people and meditated a lot. So as cliche as it sounds, I went within, like I, I needed to find the strength in myself to be able to do this because I couldn't find it anywhere outside. I had to eventually I was the one going to do the swim in the water. So nobody else would, could help me in that process. So I read a lot. Um, uh, I, I started seeing inspiration in everything. So I remember I was reading a book um, and they were talking about railroads and bridges. And I was like, I, I started thinking about the people who created those bridges for the first time or who created the railway system for the first time. And I, I started thinking that people must have thought they are crazy too. So I started drawing inspiration from all these things. Um, yeah, that's how I prepared myself. Just lock myself down. <laughs> how old were you? In 2015, I was 25, 24, 25. Wow. How did you identify these tools as the tools that would help you prepare for this? Did you read a lot? Did you speak to other athletes who had done this before? No, I had no no athletes that had done this before to speak to. Like the people who actually I was following were in South Africa. So Lewis actually sent me his book. When I told him that I was preparing for the swim, he actually sent me his book. And in that book, there was two pages dedicated to how he trained for his Antarctica swim. That's all I had to go by. So how I discovered these tools, um, I don't know. Uh I had a friend of mine helping me. He would send me poems. He would send me inspirational stuff. Um, and then I just started reading. I just, I think they came to me. I feel like when you start, um, start on a journey, people start helping you in some way or another. So my teacher helped me, my friends helped me. And then I would just go to the self-help section in the, in the bookstore and just pick stuff up. I love that. Tell me, a little bit about what your mental health journey has been through all of this. Um, my mental health journey has been a lot of um, introspection, retrospection. So I grew up, I now know the term for what I had, which was bulimia. I grew up bulimic since the age of um, 10 or 11, I think. I don't even remember how it started. But I think it was because of a lot of pressure that I was feeling during that time. And I had no outlet because my mom was my coach. She couldn't be the person where I would can go and vent. And my dad uh, is in a kind of business where he leaves in the morning and comes back at night. I couldn't vent out to my friends because no one in my school was doing or my friend circle was doing what I was doing. So and I, I grew up introverted. So I, I don't like talking about things that I'm feeling. So it was a combination of a lot of things. Um, bulimia started and my parents tried to figure out everything. So of course the physiology reports were not showing anything like because there was nothing physically wrong in my body. And then as, um, as it always happens in an Indian society, it took like a religious turn, like, you know, maybe like things like that but and there were no counselors available you know they put at that point and like just the thought that this might be a mental thing was so bizarre to everyone at that point that no one even suggested it so now i know looking back that i have bulimia or i suffer from that and i had anxiety like i would wake up with knots in my chest and stuff like that but this is all now that i'm figuring out growing up um I would just feel disappointment in myself. Like, why are you being like this? I, I would feel scared of disappointing my parents. I would feel scared of disappointing my coaches. Um, 
and I'm sure a lot of athletes relate to that. They would prefer going into the locker room and crying silently rather than showing it out loud because you're supposed to be tough. You're supposed to be all like prepared. Um, so now I have sought counseling and therapy on and off over the years and meditation helped me a lot with bulimia, but it still comes back. I, I still have anxiety and still sometimes throw up after I eat. Um, but yeah, that's, that's been my journey. It's been a lot of, um, just me trying to figure out what's happening. I'm so sorry to hear that. Uh, but I'm also really happy that you have identified it and are getting the professional help. I would like to share that I figured out I had bulimia only because my closest friend had it and she looked it up. She researched it. And that's when she came and told me, this is what you have been going through for years. I just started having it. So she developed it when we were in college. And so she did her research. So I just want to share this story to emphasize how important talking is. Like you could be in the same room thinking that you're the only one who has this and feel ashamed about it, but your friend could be suffering from the same thing. And just talking it out has been so helpful because then you can start figuring it out together. Yeah. And there's so much power in that about speaking up about something like this. How long did you suffer in silence until you actually were able to identify it as bulimia? Uh, I wouldn't, yeah, I wouldn't call it suffering in silence because my parents knew that I was throwing up. So they were trying to figure it out in their own way. But because nothing was working, we just took it as a fact of life. And like I did so many swims while I was throwing up all the food. Um, and uh, like I said, it wasn't until my friend had it in college. So this was maybe when I was 18 or 19 when we found out that this is this is what's called bulimia. So it was about 10, 10 years or so. I think mental health is something in India that is still not spoken about as much as it needs to be. And we just saw such devastating news very recently, right, about Sushant Singh Rajput. So what do you think we can do to better address the mental health needs of not just athletes, but generally as a population in India? Um, I can only speak from personal experience. I cannot give an act expert answer on that but I feel like that's what my recent Instagram post was also about and I see a lot of people saying that there needs to be mental health awareness and there needs to be talk around it but I feel like um, if we don't have resources to deal with things that come up with awareness then it's just going to backfire so badly because okay when I was growing up, I knew that there was something happening. There was there was a problem. But I wasn't aware that it was a mental health thing. And when I was made aware, I was like, so now what do I do with it? Because I didn't have any counselors around me. I didn't have any, like, a strong social support system around me who understood what was happening with me. So once now you're made of, aware of this problem, you feel frustrated because you don't see a solution. So everything comes up on surface and you feel like a walking, you know, like a landmine, like something's going to trigger you. So I feel that, yes, talking is good. Yes, speaking with your friends and family is good, but we need resources. We need more counselors. We need more psychiatrists and psychologists. We need the taboo around mental health to go away. India has one of the highest suicide rates in the world. And we are the youngest population. So we're going to lose so much, so many young people. Like Sushant was so young. Um, we need more resources. We need uh, insurance for mental health. We need parents to not be like, no, no, you don't need to go to therapy. We need the society to not demonize taking antidepressants and stuff like that. So awareness is just the first step. There has to be understanding. There has to be education in schools and colleges. Like kids need to be taught it's okay to take care of your mental health. I completely agree. And I also think we need empathy, right? I think it's so easy to say, yes, this person is going to therapy. 
but you're so disconnected from it because you kind of there's this layer of judgment almost in India about going to therapy. So I think just being more empathetic about it is going to make a huge difference. Yeah. And we have such a big worker class population. It's I like I said it's a privilege being aware of mental health issues is a privilege that not many people can afford even in middle class or higher middle class families. So just having coming from that place of empathy also that maybe you know but you cannot afford counseling. So it's okay. You know just I don't know. I'm still trying to figure it out how the best but empathy is the way to go for it for sure. Yeah, I think we're all just figuring it out. So let's see hopefully we'll see some positive change in the coming years. I hope this shake this is shaking the country enough to really take this issue more seriously. My last question for you is very relevant and something I think a lot of our listeners would like to hear today especially from you. We are in the middle of a global pandemic where it feels like we are collectively standing on the brink of the unknown. What would you like to say to those of us who are struggling to cope with the uncertainty? Um the first thing I would say is we're all in this together. I haven't figured it out. I I feel um just as anxious sitting by myself here in the apartment having a dog has been the biggest blessing he keeps me sane he keeps me happy he makes me laugh um the one thing that i can share from my own experience is befriend this isolation befriend this if you are by yourself in an apartment if you're stuck with people that you don't want to be stuck in i'm sorry for you i don't have any <laughs> Uh, but if you are alone and if you are just the kind of person who's never had the time to sit with yourself i think use use this time um as cliche as it sounds listen to the voice within and by which i don't mean like there is some universal or god voice within you is just um not we don't spend enough time getting to know ourselves what do we like what do we don't like why do we like something is it some coming from a societal conditioning or is it just our preferences so just run these little mini experiments on yourself and talk to yourself these are uncertain times and we need a day to day policy now more than ever because there is so much uncertainty like you said so if today is a good day i feel grateful about it tomorrow i'm not sure of so i'll see when tomorrow comes and the one thing that i would say as an end note is that um everything that i have said is coming from just personal experience and i am fully aware that not everybody's life is the same people are struggling to make ends meet during this time so um i don't mean to comment on anybody's life or be be a preacher but yeah it's just from personal experience pati you are a true inspiration not just for girls but for humans i would say across the world Thank you for sharing your story and your time with us. And I think there's a lot of us who are going to be waiting to see what you conquer next. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on this podcast. If you'd like to hear more stories of inspiring women in sport, you can find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite audio provider. If you like us, subscribe, share us on social media, and give us a review. I'm Kasi Malik and thanks for listening.